back and Happy New Year. It's been a minute since I've been with you in this class, so the last two or three Dr. Horton did, and then we had a two or three week break for Christmas and New Year's, and now uh, picking back up in the book of Revelation. I think we're at Revelation 13. If I'm wrong, let me know, and we'll either go back or you'll hear something twice. <laughs> but I think we're in the right spot, and today we'll look at Revelation 13, verses 1 through 7, which really has to do with the beast of the sea, uh, the beast of the sea. And if you want to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 13, we'll start there. We're in the middle of the fourth cycle. We said that there are seven cycles that unpack the book of Revelation, and we're in the fourth cycle. Last time, Dr. Horton looked at the dragon who was chasing the woman uh, in the wilderness, which is the church, which is Satan basically pursuing the seed of the woman, which is the church during this present evil age, having been cast out of heaven and thrown down from there. He can't do any damage to the people of God in heaven. They are sealed. They are his. They belong to him. And so we're talking about what's going on in this present evil age. And we're in the fourth cycle, and we saw the dragon. Uh, and today we're going to look at one of two beasts. Uh, so let's hear now the word of God, Revelation chapter 12. Let's start at verse 17 of verse 12, and then read through the first seven verses of chapter 13. So Revelation 12, 17. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold uh, to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to the dragon, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life and the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is the call for endurance and faith of the saints. So far the reading of God's holy word. This should be 10. Sorry. So if you just read this, 
could be kind of scary or freaky. You'd be wondering what's going on. But hopefully as we've gone through the class, uh, you recall that the book of Revelation is meant to comfort God's people. Uh, Sometimes God's people get freaked out when they read it, and it's not meant to freak us out. It should freak the world out, but it should comfort the people of God as we read this. And right now, just to get our bearings again, we're in the midst of the fourth cycle. And Dr. Godfrey says in his commentary, he says, the fourth episode of the fourth cycle stands structurally at the very center of the book. This is at the very center of the book of Revelation. The message is the key message of the book, namely that Christians are engaged in an intense struggle in this life against the evil one, but that God will preserve his people. So if you don't take anything else away from what I say today, it's the recognition that we're in the very middle of the book, even structurally, it's meant to highlight the reality that the church is in an intense struggle during this present evil age. And God doesn't pull any punches, Christ doesn't pull any punches about the reality of that struggle or how intense it is, but God will preserve his people. Not one of his sheep, not one of his people, not one will be lost. Uh, So we want to look at that as we go on. And so we recognize that the dragon is Satan, but the dragon has helpers. And they are hell-bent, literally, on annihilating the seed of the woman. They want to destroy the church. And so we're going to look at two beasts, one from the sea this week and one from the earth next week. And one of the things that we want to recognize is that there's an unholy trinity that is meant to mimic or mock or look like the true trinity. The dragon is Satan, he mimics the father, the beast from the sea mimics the son, and the beast from the earth mimics the Holy Spirit. And so even in the way that evil presents itself, it's mocking God, and it has its own way of trying to bring people uh, into its evil kingdom. And so Satan has sovereign control Um, Not ultimate sovereignty, obviously God has ultimate sovereignty, but Satan has a lot of authority and a lot of power. He's kind of like the father, he represents a kingly role. The beast from the sea that we're going to look at today is much like the sun, Uh, it's got a priestly role, he's the antichrist-ish, the word antichrist doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Revelation, but he's antichrist in the sense of everything he does is against Christ and his kingdom. And then the beast from the earth next week that we'll look at is like the Holy Spirit um, in its, uh, his authority in trying to bring attention to the beast from the sea who's the, the antichrist or the evil one. And he's like a prophet. And so it's really interesting to see these aren't just random creatures that they're meant to mimic or meant to mock or create an image of, it's an unholy trinity, mocking and aping God in, in one way or another. And so we want to look at today a couple things. First, the image of the sea monster, and then the identity of the sea monster, and then the impotence of the sea monster as we go through. So first, the image of the sea monster It can be really scary as you read this, right? Some creature that's got 10 horns and seven heads and 10 diadems and is just powerful. And it's meant to create this image, right? It's meant to create this powerful image of evil and how powerful and how wicked it is. The horns represent power. The heads represent wisdom. The diadems represent influence. It's just kind of talk about, we would say that evil in our world, right, has power, There's wisdom in the sense of 
it's cunning and able to bring about its own wickedness, and that it has influence. But note that it has blasphemous names on its heads, right? This is not the image that you saw of Christ in the opening chapters who had many horns or many heads or what have you, when you saw this image of Christ, that this one has blasphemous names. And without exception, the imagery of a sea monster throughout Scripture is used to represent evil or one who seeks to persecute God's kingdom, whether that's in the book of Job or Psalms or Isaiah or Ezekiel. So the fact that this creature is coming out of the sea, out of the abyss, out of the chaos, uh, constantly brings to mind throughout Scripture this image of one who seeks to do evil or that's destructive. Over and over we see that throughout Scripture. And that's why we said throughout this series in particular, if you want to understand Revelation, the best place to go is the Old Testament, not to Fox or CNN or MSNBC or modern interpretive things. The Scripture tells us what we need to know about this. And in particular, it had to make sense to the first century Christians. It had to make sense to 3rd century, 5th century, 7th century, 12th century Christians. They weren't waiting for something to happen in the 21st century. And now, Eureka, we get it. This was meant to comfort the churches and Christians of all ages. And so the background for this is really Daniel 7. Turn, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. Note the similarities. They're not exactly the same, but the similarities between what's described here and what's described in Revelation. So Daniel's vision of the four beasts. Revelation, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of the man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. And behold, in the horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and the mouth speaking great things. So if you try to draw this... <laughs> It would be a really interesting creature. And if you were to take it absolutely literal, you're expecting a creature like this, right, to arise. 
And we recognize we're, we're expecting something like this, not this. <laughs> something that's described like this. Something that's powerful. Something that's influential. Something that's deceptive. Something that's not like anything that we've seen before. And so Daniel's describing, look, like this one that's coming out in those days is unlike any of the other beasts before, but notice that the same words that are used, leopard, bear, and lion, in Daniel are the ones that are used here in Revelation, right? What do we know about those creatures, right? They're all predators. They all seek prey. They all seek to devour, right? Something dangerous, something powerful. This one's more terrifying, Daniel tells us then uh, the one that comes is even more terrifying than any that's come before us. Now, Satan is, understands that he's defeated because Christ is crucified, Christ is risen, and Christ is uh, ruling and reigning in heaven. And what he had hoped would be his most victorious day on, on Good Friday when the seed of the woman was slain ended up being his, his ultimate demise as three days later Christ rose from the dead. And now he knows I can't win. But he's going to do as much damage as he can in the interim. And he's thrown down from heaven. He has no influence, no power, no authority in heaven. But he's going to wreak as much havoc on the earth and on the church uh, as possible. And this is what he's going to do. We recognized before that Satan doesn't love anything. He doesn't even love his own people. He's not trying to you know, get an army of people, hey guys, we're all in this together. He hates the people in his army. He wants them destroyed. He loves nothing. There's nothing beautiful. There's nothing lovely. There's nothing glorious. There's nothing holy about him at all. It's just all hatred, all destruction, all evil, all the time. And that's what he wants to do or what he wants to bring about. So here, Daniel, uh, John really sees a mashup of all these beasts that are talked about in Daniel, pointing to one beast who is like all of them, but even more terrifying. And what comes out of his mouth is arrogance. What comes out of his mouth is blasphemy. He just speaks lies all the time. That's what he's been doing from the beginning. In the garden, he was a liar and a deceiver. His tricks haven't changed. Today, he's a liar and a deceiver. Through him, through the beast of the sea, through the beast of the earth, through his minions, through his evil, through his influence on the earth. Always lying and always deceiving. Turn just a little bit further in Daniel chapter 7 to verse 25. Just want to spend a little time in this because this will help us identify the sea monster. Because so many people are trying to figure out some present day figure that's this person. And I want to say this is the spirit of the age. The, the, the beast's influence has been prevalent since the time of Christ. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 says, He, right, this creature, shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time, which we'll get to. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. 
to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. So this is talking about this beast, like speaking blasphemy against the Most High, against God, against his anointed, against his people, and that he's going to be able to do this for a time and time and half a time. But then it's noting the end, which is what we said. What is the fourth cycle about? That God preserves his people. But it says, uh, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. Look at Daniel seven fifteen through 18. So a few verses before. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, right? When you see these kind of visions or you hear these things, right? This is freaking me out a little bit. I was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him for the truth concerning all these things. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom of God for a little bit. Right? What's it say? Forever and ever. And ever. So Daniel's saying, look, this image freaks me out. I'm alarmed by this. Can somebody tell me what this means? And he says, yes, these four great beasts represent right these kings or these kingdoms or these powers or these influences that seem terrifying. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. That's what we've tried to reiterate over and over throughout the book of Revelation. These things look scary from the perspective of the earth. From the perspective of heaven, it's like, God's got this. <laughs> and he's got you. And all of our brothers and sisters who already died are with him safely and secure. And all of us on the earth who know him and belong to him and confess his name, though we are slayed, we will be raised again to a newness of life. And we will rule with him and reign with him forever and ever and ever. It's meant to be a great comfort to us. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a mortal wound, our text said, but its mortal wound was healed. Right? Both, I said that this image is kind of like, the beast is kind of like the sun. So there's similarities to the image of Jesus that are like this beast, seven things in particular. They both have swords, they both have followers whose names are written on their foreheads. They both have horns. They both are slain. They both rise to new life and are given authority. They have authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and they both receive universal worship. In a limited sense, right, this one, because he's not eternal and he's not ultimate. But it's real interesting that throughout the book of Revelation, this sea monster and Christ are shown as being similar, right? Because Satan goes around masquerading as an angel of light, right? He wants to look like something that's good and pure and beautiful, but he's not. 
But he has a sword. He has followers. He has a horn. He was apparently slain and came to new life again. He has authority, and he receives worship, much like Jesus. But also, obviously, radically different than Jesus. But the closer that Satan can sometimes get to the truth, the more easy it is for people to believe. People often don't believe the big lie. They will, and they do. You can look at our world and see that. But kind of the closer that you get. That's why Satan didn't start in the garden by saying God didn't say. He said, has God really said? Right? He just wants to cause doubt first. Well, let's just let's consider that. Did God really say this? And then eventually he'll go on and say God didn't say this or deny what God says. But this beast does all these things through words, through deception, through lying, through deceitfulness, one way or another. And so we want to recognize that. That's the image that we get. It's an image, right? We're not expecting a literal monster to come out of some sea in some future time and do all of these things. How many people can look back on the history of the church or the history of the world and say, hey, people have been deceived and people have followed a false god and people have followed a false religion and the church of Jesus Christ has been persecuted. When did that, when is that going to start? That happened. That's been going on. As it says, you could say in some sense it's getting worse. So the second thing we want to look at is the identity of the sea monster. Dennis Johnson wrote this. He wrote, Often in popular prophetic teaching, the beast of Revelation 13 is assumed to be the Antichrist. The title Antichrist is not used in Revelation. It appears only five times in the Bible, all of them in 1 and 2 John. Applying Antichrist language to Revelation's beast may be appropriate as long as we see clearly the reality that it describes what's in John's epistles. So again, Revelation never, ever, ever uses the word Antichrist. So it's not looking for one figure, which next week when we get into the Mark of the Beast, like everybody's tried to take that 666 and apply it to some human being, whether it was Napoleon or Hitler or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Ringo Starr. I mean, whoever. It's not talking about that. You'll drive yourself bonkers, and you'll mislead the people of God, and you'll misrepresent what this book is about. And so we're in the last hour. John, who wrote Revelation, said, I'm a partner with you in the tribulation. We're in it. We're in it until Christ returns. And John said, even in his time, many antichrists have already come. And so what's characteristic of an antichrist? How do you know if someone is antichrist? John says, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. And he says, every spirit that refuses to confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. How do I know if somebody's antichrist or a spirit of the antichrist? They deny that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the only one. And they deny that he's come in the flesh. 
Johnson will go on to say, although John's readers have heard that a specific and personal expression of Satan's rebellion against Jesus Christ is to come at some point in the future, John wants them to recognize that satanic deceptions that surround them today to see that this is the last hour already in the first century and therefore to be on guard. And so then Dr. Godfrey, you know, when everybody wants to know, well, who is the beast? And again, there's not just one beast. Here's what Godfrey says. If we are strictly literal, the beast must be an animal. But many literalists, violating their own literalistic principles, have looked for some person to be revealed in the future and identified with this beast. The beast from the sea represents, in many ways, the false religions of the world where false gods are worshipped. Behind all these false religions stand the evil one, who is ultimately the one worshipped by all who reject the true and living God in his Christ. So the, what the beast is trying to do is to take away the glory that belongs to Christ alone. Jesus, plus or minus anything, is a false religion. The whole book of Revelation started off with an image of Jesus as the lamb that was slain at the very center of the new heavens and the new earth. And so anything in our day, right? We say all roads lead to Jesus. Any religion, you know, we're all kind of just saying the same thing. That's satanic. That's deceptive, that's evil, that's this beast. Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If our message is something other than that, we're antichrist. We're participating in the spirit of the age. It sounds harsh, right, to modern ears because it couldn't be more exclusive. This is the only way. Jesus Christ. But it's also uber-inclusive, isn't it? Everyone and everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Male, female, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, no matter what you've done, how bad, how whatever, anyone who repents and believes, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Amen? That's great news. But all around us, we're surrounded by the influence of the beast that wants to soften that, that wants to change that, that wants to misdirect that. His intention is to deceive people into worshiping anyone and anything other than the true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Imagine the power of that. Imagine the destructiveness of that. Right? The worst thing that can happen to you is not to die. The worst thing that can happen to you is to die apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ and wake up to the reality of eternal judgment. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. We often think, gosh, I just don't want to die. And I don't want to die. And there's many horrible ways to die. 
And I often think, I don't want to die that way. I want to die in a vat of haagen ice cream. <laughs> but there are many horrible ways to die, right? Every time I go scuba diving, I'm like, eh, let's keep the sharks, Lord, keep the sharks far from me. Um, but I love to go scuba diving, so I go scuba diving. But there are many horrible ways to die. That's not the worst thing that can happen. And so, so many of us, right, our prayer, our hope, with a prayer group that we meet with every Sunday night, the most common prayer request is for our friends and family who don't know the Lord to know the Lord. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more important that the church has to proclaim than the good news of Jesus Christ, that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, but everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. There's a wrath coming that dwarfs and apes anything that Satan can do, which is the eternal wrath of God burning against all of those who reject him, reject his word, reject his son, reject his gospel message, reject all of these things. It's really serious. And so note it says, they worship the dragon for he had, was given authority his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Right? That's the same kind of things that people say about God. Who can fight against him? Who can do this? Who can be more powerful than all the things that we see here on earth? Well, the one who's in heaven. The one who conquered sin, the one who conquered Satan, the one who conquered death. He is risen. He is risen. That's amazing. It seems like, gosh, death is so powerful. Jesus lives. He is the resurrection. He is the life. He is ruling and reigning in heaven. The weapons of the beast are his words. The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Blasphemies against his dwelling. Blasphemies against those who dwell in heaven. And it says he was allowed to make war against the saints and to conquer them, get this, on earth. Let me ask you this, beloved. Where is your citizenship? We said that on earth is a key phrase throughout Revelations. We can be killed here, right? We can be killed. We can be martyred. We can be harmed here. But we will be raised to newness of life. You may be slaughtered for your faith. You may be mocked here. You may be harmed here. But this life isn't all there is. You are actually created and destined for another life and another realm and another glory. So on earth you will have trouble, Jesus says. But take heart, I've overcome. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If you remember, we said the Holy Spirit was the seal, right? We're, what's the seal given to the saints? The Holy Spirit. The third person of the Holy Trinity dwells in you. And there's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate you from God. You can be killed. This mortal life. We're going to shuffle off this mortal coil. But that's not the end. That's actually the beginning, <laughs> of the new life with Christ. And so then note that he saw what looked like seven seals. 
and that this beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So this time frame that he's allowed to exercise authority is limited by God. God said he can do this for so long and no further, no longer. And then everyone was trying to figure out what are the 42 months. 42 months is the same time frame as three and a half years, is the same time frame as 1,260 days, is the same time frame as times, times, and half a time in Daniel. All of them are the same period of time. All of them are a short period of time. All of them are half of seven. All of them represent our present evil age. When Jesus said, I'm coming soon. This is a short period of time relative to eternity. Oh gosh, it seems like a long time to us, doesn't it? It's been 2,000 plus years. Imagine the saints before Christ. All the years they're waiting and longing for the sun to come. At least five to ten times longer than we waited. And here we're just waiting and longing. How much longer? We even heard in Revelation the saints in heaven under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord? They're waiting for the resurrection of the body. They're waiting for the rest of us to be joined with them. And so this period of time, it's trying to say, God is allowing Satan, allowing these things, allowing the war to go on for this time and no further. He doesn't have any power. He doesn't have any authority. He doesn't have one more day of power. But this amount of time. And we've already seen why. Why is God waiting or prolonging? Because he's waiting for every single one for whom Jesus died to be brought into the fold. And once Jesus has all of his sheep into his fold, it's done. He's coming back. The 42 months are over, the three and a half years are over, the 1260 days are over, the time times and half a time, and the king is coming and he's returning in glory and in power and in might. It's the exact same length of time that Dr. Horton covered with you in terms of how long the two witnesses are around, and it's the exact same time in Revelation 12 for how long he cares for his church. In other words, it's meant to comfort you that during the present evil age, when this dragon, this beast, and this other beast seem all-powerful, God's got his people that entire time. And though they slay me, yet will I live. Though they do great damage or seek to do great damage, though the gates of hell seek to ruin the church, Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. So during this entire period, we belong to him. It's meant to be an incredible comfort to us. God's got his people. None of his will be lost. Jesus said this specifically. How many of his sheep are going to be lost? None. It's impossible. He's the one who's almighty and all-powerful. This is just a horrible, grotesque mockery of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity says, the Father says, I love you. The Son says, I love you, and he comes and dies for you, and the Holy Spirit is given to you to seal you in God's love. And Romans 8 says, there's nothing in all of creation, nothing, 
that can separate you from the love of the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit now and always. That gives us great comfort and confidence. It doesn't give us a charter of exemption from trials or tribulations or difficulties in this world, but it gives us the confidence and the comfort to know I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as surely as he came, he's coming back. And he said, I'm coming soon. And so our eyes are fixed on the horizon and our ears are attuned to the promises as we await. The last thing we want to note is the impotence of the sea monster. And by that, I mean his impotence over the people of God. Because the way he's presented is really powerful, isn't it? It sounds successful. He sounds dreadful. He sounds terrifying. Note that this beast has authority to make war and conquer the saints on earth. He has authority over every tribe, people, and language, and nation, which sounds like the same language as Jesus' kingdom. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Note the exception. Everyone except those whose names have been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's meant to be a great comfort. (laughs) People hear the first part and get freaked out. This beast has authority to make war and conquer the saints on the earth. Authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. You're not an earth dweller. You're a heaven dweller. You worship the king. You worship the lamb who was slain. All the people on the earth who do not belong to Jesus Christ worship this beast in one way or another. Insert any other religion other than Christianity in there. They're, They're worshiping Satan. Jesus plus or minus anything is a false religion. And they are. They're all worshiping this beast. But not those whose names have been written before the foundation of the world. What does that tell us? That this was God's plan all along. And that it wasn't based on what you've done. It's based on God's promise and God's mercy and God's care and God's compassion. And this is the only time this exact phrase appears in the Bible because most of the time it's just, you think of the book of life, right? It adds something here. In the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Your name before the foundation of the world was recorded. In the book of life of the lamb that was slain of Jesus. The very ones for whom Jesus Christ was slain the very ones for whom Jesus Christ will die, all of them will be with him forever. The beast can do all kinds of damage, but not to these, not to any of them. Yes, temporal damage. No eternal damage. No irreparable damage. No taking them out of this kingdom and putting them in another. They are Christ's from before the foundation of the world. And so, beloved, don't be duped. Don't be deceived by any of these things. This is the call to the churches. I just want to point out something here in this last phrase. Look back at Revelation chapter 13. This is interesting. In chapter 13, verse 10, the very last part of it says, here is a call for the endurance of faith of the saints. 
the phrase a call for is not present in the Greek text. And so if you read it just like this, it makes it seem like it's calling us to take some action to do this. When what the text is meant to be is to comfort you, um, here it is. This is the endurance of the saints. It's not calling you to do something here. Certainly throughout Scripture, we're called to have faith and we're called to endurance. But this text in particular isn't saying, here's a call for the endurance of faith of the saints. It's saying, here is the endurance of the saints. That God's got his people, that they will endure. That though this beast is powerful, not one will be taken away from him. It's really interesting. You can see why the ESV wants to do that. Like, what are we supposed to do with this? <laughs> but it doesn't say that. It just says, here is the endurance of the saints. Here's a picture of the endurance of the saints. Though he seeks to do havoc, God will preserve his people and not one of them will be lost. Let's hear this, Let's hear this in conclusion put a different way by the Apostle Paul. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll close with this. This is just drafting off this idea about your names written in the Lamb's book of life or the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. This comfort of Ephesians 1 is what you should also get from Revelation 13, but it's harder to see it first. <laughs> we'll start in verse 3. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And I'll just close with this. And then Paul has a prayer right after it. I'll just pray that prayer as the closing prayer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual, and that should be a capital S, every Holy Spirit blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know 
What is the hope to which he has called you? And what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all, fills all in all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go in peace.